The following sermon is from Redemption Bible Church of New Braunfels, where we are proclaiming the authority of God's Word without apology in order to fulfill the Great Commission in the spirit of the Great Commandment. Thanks, Pastor. Well, good morning. morning. It's good to be here uh, with you brothers and sisters um, from New Braunfels. Uh, pray for you every week, just so you know, and, and as Pastor Blair said, uh, he and I have uh, the privilege to connect on a weekly basis, and then I've had a handful of opportunities to do some training with some of the key leaders here at the church. As uh, a year ago, right now, me and my family moved back down to Texas from Canada, um, and so it's been a great climate change, I'll tell you that. In fact, we had some friends from Canada um, visiting us last week, and they were grateful for the warmth. Um, and I said, well, don't come in August, because you would melt. Um, so it's a, it's a complete trade, a nice summer for a, for a nice winter. And so I um, uh, want to just tell you a couple things about myself before we get into God's Word. Um, uh, I, I, I am uh, part of what we call the Soul Care Collective, okay? And the Soul Care Collective means that uh, several like-minded churches, they happen to all be Great Commission Collective Churches, GCC churches that are partnering um, to, to, to really try to build from, from, the, from the intentional life on life in the church to the intensive counseling need, a culture of what we call soul care in the local church, okay? And so anytime I get a chance to preach at one of the churches, I want to talk about what we would call the one another's of Scripture, okay? The one another's of Scripture are basically God's call onto the believer in Christ um, and what their responsibility is in the local church. If you're anything like me, I grew up Southern Baptist, church was just a place where we go and we heard the preacher preach, but all the church stuff was his job because that's what he got paid for. The problem with that is the Bible. The Bible calls a community of saints into one another's lives in such a way where as the gospel is proclaimed to the individual, it has implications for what we do for and towards one another as the church. That this is not a church, it's an actual, it's a cafeteria or something, right? The church is us, right? And soul care seeks to bring the gospel into the life and the heartbeat of the local church so that men and women and children of the church are um, ministering to one another in a gospel-powered way. So we're going to be in Matthew 18 today. Uh, Matthew 18, verse 21. It's actually going to talk about one of the one of the one another's. We're going to talk about forgiveness today. Uh, if you need a Bible, um, I'm assuming that they've already passed out the Bibles, but raise your hand and we can grab you a Bible if you still need one. And I'm assuming it's okay to take that Bible if you don't own a Bible. Uh, Matthew 18, verse 21. We're going to really unpack um, these verses all the way to 35. And I'm just going to go verse by verse, but I want to give you a bit of context before we get into verse 21 because the context earlier in the chapter is going to be very helpful for understanding this parable that Jesus is going to tell us. So in Matthew 18, verse 1, you're going to see an interesting dialogue. The the disciples are with Christ, and they're having this back-and-forth conversation, and this this conversation is over the question, who's the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And it's a head-scratcher for me. When I read this, I'm like, are you guys dumb? I mean, really, like, you just sound arrogant having the conversation, and yet the, the, the more I see my tendency, the more I think I relate more with the disciples than with Christ in the story, that, that I do these head-scratching things that, that God surely must be like, oh, you have no idea how full of yourself you are right now. And this is one of those moments where the disciples are totally missing the mark, and they're having this conversation, and Jesus is patiently listening to them. And as they're debating this, Jesus 
draws a child in, into the midst of them, and, and Jesus brings this child in. He says, truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. So here's what Jesus does. He explains to them who the kingdom of heaven is for. It's not childishness that he's pointing out. He's talking about childlikeness, okay? And this picture of childlikeness is this picture of dependency. Like our kids, the younger they are, the more they need us, right? Like uh, that, that we're created, and you see this in Genesis 1 and 2, I don't have time to unpack it, but you see that we're created to be unbelievably dependent upon the Father. Children do this the best. They don't act like they're independent. They act like they need their parents. Sometimes they're even a bit too clingy, right? Like children are children. Children are needy. They need their parents' protection. They need their parents to pay the bills so that they can eat because they can't get a job yet. They can't even vote. That children are unbelievably needy and dependent upon their parents. So Jesus is pointing out this posture of childlikeness to point out what it means to be the greatest in the kingdom, and that is one who's humble and dependent. And then he gives three threats to this childlikeness. Now these threats are actually gonna be referred back to in our text, and so I wanna reference them. There's these three threats. There's the threats of self. This is probably the greatest threat, that you and I, the biggest threat to us being childlike before the Father is us. It's us. It's our pride. It's our, we, we're, we're loud and proud, we're autonomous, we're independent, and it flies in the face of our Heavenly Father who created us to be wonderfully dependent upon Him. Second threat that he references in these verses five through seven, he talks about the threat of the world, that we live in this fallen world, and Satan's described in Scripture as the prince of the power of the air, okay? That means he's more powerful than you and I. And then let that set in for a second that you woke up this morning under the influence, hopefully not of alcohol, <laughs> you woke up this morning under the influence of Satan. You know why? Because this is his dominion. Now he's a dog on a leash, okay? Christ has all authority. He can never trump God. He can never trump um, Jesus Christ who's seated at the right hand of the Father who's been declared all authority to him. But this side of heaven, until Christ comes back to take the redeemed home, he has unbelievable dominion on this earth, and you're influenced by it more than you even know. And then a third one, he talks about the threat of others, that there's this, there's this false gospel that can and is preached that leads these little ones astray. So he gives these threats, and then he talks about this parable of the lost sheep, and then he talks about if your brother sins against you, he gives this clear process for how we're to walk out dealing with each other's sins as we look towards the cross together, and then you get into this unbelievable parable that Jesus is about to say, and that's where we pick up in verse 21. Matthew 18, verse 21. Then Peter, gotta love Peter, he's about to open his mouth. Then Peter came up and said to him, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? Now Peter, I think, takes a bit of a bad rap because he does some bonehead things in scripture. But I think the thing he does for everybody is he says the thing that everybody's thinking, but everybody's too afraid to ask. Now that's conjecture on my part, I can't prove that, but he's real quick to talk, right? Probably should be a bit quicker to listen. And, and he just kind of blurts it out. But here he says something profound. How often will my brother sin against me and I've forgiven? In other words, he's listened to the previous, previous verses that Jesus himself has talked about. And he's buying into this topic of forgiveness. Okay, I hear you, Lord. 
how, how much should I forgive then? And he says, as many as seven times, Jesus said to him. As many as seven times, Peter says. Jesus is about to answer him. But, but let me give you some context as, as to what Peter's saying here. Peter's saying seven times. The rabbinic tradition, in other words, the good church folk, the good religious tradition of this time would have been three times. Okay, so if you'd have gone to your pastor at this, poor, at this period and say, hey, pastor, how many times do I need to forgive my dad or my mom or my, my aunt or my uncle or my neighbor who wronged me? How many times? Your preacher would have said three times because that was the religious, the, 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 the uh, entrenched religious position at that time. Peter doubles it and adds one, right? I mean, it's a pretty big deal here. Peter's like, this forgiveness thing is such a big deal. I hear you, Jesus. How many times? I'm going to go, seven. Is it seven? And then Jesus says this. I do not say to you seven times, but 70 times seven. So here's, th this, this is a profound answer that Christ gives. Um, so here's, there's two things that Jesus is bringing together here, and, and, and this, is, this is rich context, and I want you to understand it. Um, if you, you don't have to turn there, but sometime this week, go back to Genesis 4, okay? Genesis 4, is a, is a, there's a great scene between Cain and Abel, okay? Cain and Abel um, are Adam and Eve's sons, and they bring this sacrifice before God. God's pleased with one and not the other. He's pleased with Abel's sacrifice. It has everything to do with Abel's heart before the Lord. Cain gets unbelievably jealous and murders his brother. He murders him. And then God's looking for Abel, not, not like he didn't know where he is, he's looking for Cain and he calls out to Cain and he, he's, as he's calling out to Cain, he asks Cain, where is your brother? And, and Cain says, am I my brother's keeper, right? In other words, he sidesteps everything. It's a passive response. He doesn't square up with the Lord. And the Lord, in essence, says the ground screams out with his blood. You've murdered him. And then you see the, the, the consequences, the fallout, because then what happens to Cain is Cain is unbelievably moved by the Lord, and he says some things to the Lord because he's broken. And it seems like at first that Cain's making excuses, but here's what Cain says. He says, my punishment is greater than I can bear. Sounds like he's complaining, right? Let's keep reading. Behold, you have driven me today away from the ground, and from your face I shall be hidden. I shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth, and whoever finds me will kill me. So he sees rightly. He's saying, I deserve to be murdered for what I've done. Because the consequences that are about to be levied on Cain is he's being banished, sent away. I mean, heavy consequences. Heavy consequences that the Lord puts on Cain, and Cain's like, I deserve it. Like, shh, whoever sees me, they should kill me. I deserve it. Here's what the Lord says. Then the Lord said to him, not so. If anyone kills Cain, vengeance shall be taken sevenfold. And here's where Jesus picks up and he's drawing off of um, later in the chapter. There's this guy named Lamech and he's a descendant of Cain. And L Lamech does some, something. He, some, some young dude makes him angry and Lamech murders this young man. And here's what Lamech says later in Genesis 4, who's a descendant of Cain. He says, behold, you have driven me today away from the ground and from your face I shall be hidden. I 
shall be a fugitive and a wanderer of the earth, and whoever finds me will kill me. And then Lamech says this later in chapter, verse 23. He says, I have killed a man for wounding me, a young man for striking me. If Cain's revenge is sevenfold, then Lamech's is 77-fold. Here's what Christ is saying. Why would Christ use this reference from Genesis 4 in this dialogue in Matthew 18? Here's why. He's saying that forgiveness is not a calculated response, that justice is the Lord's. It's always the Lord's. When somebody wrongs you, man, what's the natural tendency in our flesh? Pound of flesh, right? Right? I mean, we can be honest here, can't we? Anybody ever hurt you and you wanna, okay, all right, is how we're playing? Okay. And some of you kind of just blow up right away, and some of you are more calculated. It's a little bit more scary. I mean, you'll plan for days how to come back around and revisit. What's Jesus saying? Vengeance is a Lord's. Justice is a Lord's. If he put a mark on Cain and says, nobody touches Cain, how much more those who've sinned against you? <laughs> In other words, to take justice to take vengeance, to take consequence into your own hands and to pour it onto somebody else is against God's design. But he's also drawing in, write down Luke 17, verses three through four. I want you to look these verses up later this week. This is the other thing that Jesus is drawing in. Here's what Luke says. Pay attention to yourselves. If your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times in a day and turns to you seven times saying, repent, I must forgive him. How many times? As many times as he asks. Forgiveness is never an equation. It's never calculated. Like it's a heart posture. As the gospel changes, it sets your heart in a different place. It's called from death to life. And in that place of life, that heart postures ready to forgive early and often. Because guess what? We sin early and often. And that grace is there as we call it, Lord, forgive me. At no point does he withhold that forgiveness from the redeemed. At no point. That as we repented in our prayer time this morning, the Lord received that and has cleansed you through the blood of Jesus Christ. He is not withheld as you've cried out. So our hearts are never to be calculating. They're never to be scheming. They're never to be a pound of flesh mentality. It's always as you've forgiven, how could I not forgive? So Jesus is speaking against a scheming and calculating approach to forgiveness. Childlike humility... Matthew 18, verses one through four. Childlike humility in the community of faith leads to a relentless capacity for, to forgive. Forgiveness is not an equation, it's a heart posture. Brothers and sisters, if you call this your church home, man, there's a really good chance, maybe even today, since we're all together, somebody's gonna offend you here. Forgive, forgive. Walk in forgiveness. Pursue and grant forgiveness. There's a good chance when you go home, somebody in your family is going to sin against you today. Life happens. Sin happens. And as followers of Christ, we're called to forgive early and often, and Jesus is now about to tell us how to walk that out. Um, there's a, the reality of where Jesus has gone up to this point is he's given us everything we need to know about forgiveness. We could, we could shut the sermon down right now, go get an early lunch, okay? I'm not gonna do that. 
I got you, so I'm gonna keep you for a bit. But Jesus could stop right here. He's given us everything we need to know about forgiveness. Vengeance is the Lord's, and forgiveness is a heart posture. Okay, let's shut it down, right? You don't get off that easy. Let's keep going. He's about to tell this story. It's a parable. And this parable, like the thing about a parable, remember, parables are meant to, to express or be a reflection of what the kingdom of God is like, okay? So if you wanna know God's economy, these parables are a shadow towards that end. So verse 23, here's where he picks up with his parable. Therefore, the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. So, so the king represents the father, God the father, okay? So you've got this king, this master, okay? He's gonna be called a master. He's gonna be called a king. He's, he's kind of gone to his accountant and he's saying, hey, let's settle all my accounts. Who owes me money? Let's settle that so that I can get my books right. That's in essence what's going on here. It's about tax time, right? Somebody you just dawned on you, April 15th's coming, right? Like get your taxes done. That's what he's doing. He's getting his books right. Verse 24, when he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents, okay? Talents don't mean much to us because we don't operate by a scale, yeah? So the, the way they used talents was, you ever seen the, the older movies where they've got, or, or even in history where they use the scale to, to, to buy and to measure things? So, so you've got the scale and the talents are a, a, a weighted measurement for the scales to tip the scales to know how much you owe to buy a certain product or a certain resource. So this man owes the king 10,000 talents. Here's the reality. This is millions and millions of dollars. I don't even know how you get into this kind of a debt with your boss. I have, it doesn't say, it really doesn't even matter, but he's in, he's in the type of debt that's insurmountable. So that's the picture that Jesus is paying. This isn't a debt that he can even call a rich buddy to bail him out of. This is a significant amount of money owed. It's an insurmountable debt. He owed him 10,000 talents, verse 25. And since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all that he had and payment be made. So the father is the king, okay? God the father is the king. Guess who we are? We're the ones who owe, okay? We're, we're the ones who owe 10,000 talents. It's an insurmountable debt. That's everyone in the room, okay? You can't get out from underneath the weight of sin that we bring into this world. It's insurmountable. That's the picture here. There's nothing we can do to repay it. Like if, if church to you is check off the box, God's smiling at me today because I'm a pretty good person. You don't understand the gospel. If, if checking your boxes of morality or what you bring to the table so that God's pleased with you, you don't understand the gospel. You don't. This debt that we owe is because of our sin and there's nothing we can do to get out from underneath it. It is unbelievably choking. And it sucks the life out of us. And so you see that this servant can't pay this debt back. And the, the, the master, he's coming for what he's owed. It's no small amount. And then verse 26, so the servant fell on his knees imploring. I mean, this imploring, he's, again, it's conjecture. There's probably snot bubbles. <laughs> he's on his face. He's pleading his guts out. 
I mean, he is pleading his guts out. He's imploring. So the servant fell on his knees, imploring, have patience with me. I will pay you everything. Uh, Excuse me? I don't think so. So he's broken. He's snot bubbles and all. But now he's trying to, he's cashing a check. He's, he's cashing a check he can't deliver on, though. You're not repaying this, bro. This, this is a plead, but it's an inaccurate plead. Okay, he's, he's not able to pay this debt back, but he is broken, he's emotional, and he's pleading. In verse 27, out of the pity for him, the master of the servant released him and forgave the debt. Are you kidding me? So let me... Let me give you the gospel thread through this story right now. Here's the first point of this gospel thread. The debt occurred represents the cost of sin, that our sin before a holy God is worse than we can ever comprehend or imagine. You gotta understand this, guys. Like our sin before a holy God, like if God turned his back on his son when he was on the cross because Jesus was wearing the weight of our sin, it must be pretty bad. Jesus was sinless, and God couldn't look on him. Does that tell you anything about our sin? It is evil before a holy God. Yet we tinker with it, right? We play with it. We act like it's not that big of a deal. It's an offense to a holy God, and he will not wink at it. He doesn't let it have a pass. Our sin has to be dealt with. It has to, because he's that holy, right? This is it. I mean, like, get to the good news, preacher. Let this set in for a bit. Our sin is greater than we could ever imagine, and there's nothing you can do to get out from underneath of it. It's an insurmountable debt. It's an insurmountable debt. Here's the second point of this gospel thread. The penalty of sin is so great, he would not be able to get out from underneath it, and then the consequences are further reaching than he could ever have imagined. I mean, his his wife and kids, they didn't do anything. This is his debt. But the consequences of his debt are so severe, the master's like, well, then we're selling your whole family. And I can assure you, him selling his family and splitting them up, he's not gonna recoup the millions owed, hardly at all. It's just the consequences of his sin are that great and that far-reaching that it hits his loved ones. Anybody made a dumb decision and it affected your whole family? The consequences of sin are further reaching than we could ever imagine. (laughs) And then here's the last point. The king absorbs the debt, granting complete freedom and cancellation of that debt. And this is where you see amazing grace. So the master, the king, He's collecting his debts from all that owe him. This guy owns, owes him millions. He cancels the debt, so who takes the loss? Who takes the loss? The king does. He takes the loss. He takes the loss of the millions to pardon the one who owed him. That's the amazing grace. Jesus took the loss For our debt, he took the loss. And men, we're in Hebrews right now at our church, and you see 
the implications of Christ having to go through, our, through suffering. He had to walk out suffering. He had to be the priest that was the sacrifice because it came in through a man in Adam and sin had to be erased through a man, Jesus the greater Adam. It had to be that way. It had to be that way. And Christ absorbs. He takes the loss for our debt. Again, I think we could stop the sermon, the sermon right here and just like sing praises to the Lord for this great grace. But I wonder, what's the servant's response to this great grace given to him? What's he gonna do with it? Because right now I'm thinking like, let's throw a party. Like, let's throw a party. Let's invite everyone because we've just been pardoned a death sentence and we have life now. Let's see what he does with it. Go to verse 28. But when the same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants. So hang on, fellow servant. So if there's an org chart, you know what an org chart is, right? They're peers on the org chart. Fellow servant. This isn't his, it's not his, he's not his boss. He has no authority over him. This is a fellow servant. But when he, when the same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. Okay, here's what a hundred denarii is. hundred denarii is a hundred days wages. Okay, so 100 days wages for me, that's a couple mortgages for us. That's significant for us. Like if I were to lose 100 days wages all of a sudden, man, we're in trouble. <laughs> like there's a couple mortgages not getting paid. I mean, it's, it's, not, it, it's not a small amount, but it's doable, is it not? We can figure something out here. We can put it on a payment plan. We can figure this amount out. He owes him a hundred denarii and seizing him, he began to choke him saying, pay what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, have patience with me, I will pay you. Man, this is actually more believable than his plead earlier. Have patience, I will pay you but he's choking the life out of him. And it's right after, right after, it's on the heels of the master forgiving him. It's like he's like looking around to find somebody to deliver the justice on them, what should have been fallen on him. He's the one that should have gotten choked out. But he finds one who owes him 100 days labor and begins to choke him and deliver justice on him. And then here's what he does. He pleads, have patience with me and I will pay you, verse 30. He refused and went and put him in prison until he should pay the, pet, pay the debt. So he throws him in prison. Like how are you gonna work in prison? He damns him. He can't even, he can't even pay the debt now. What a graceless response. What a graceless response to the amazing grace that had just been extended to him. So he seeks out this fellow servant. He delivers the justice that he probably deserved. And he threw him in prison. So if, it's as if he plays out this punishment that he deserved on his peer. His will is set against compassion, mercy, and grace. Can you see the grace, gracelessness? Can you? Can you see the gospellessness response from him? And then here's verse 31. When his, when his fellow servants saw what he had taken, they were greatly distressed and they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. So this is a side note and this is hardly my main point in the sermon, but I mean, 
how do I say this? People are watching. People are watching how we live our lives as Christians. So when the house of God, when the, the body of Christ treat each other like they don't really like each other, people are watching that. So these servants are watching this whole thing go down. They've seen the first servant pardoned a great debt, and then they saw him choke the life out of this other servant, this peer. They're so perplexed by it, they go and tell the master. Here's, the, here's what I want us to see, brothers and sisters. Um, and here's why this burdens me the way that it does. In counseling ministry for really since 2005, one of the most consistent issues I see in the counseling room is bitterness and unforgiveness in people's hearts. I see it all the time. Somebody's hurt them, somebody's wronged them, they've held on to that hurt, they've stored it in their heart and it turns into resentment. And when people who are non-believers, pagans, watch this and see a gracelessness and a gospellessness from the redeemed, that should be troubling to us. Those who've been given grace and are fly the flag of grace all the time, but then we turn around and don't show grace to our brother or sister, what's wrong with that? You wanna talk about hypocrisy? I'll, I'll be the first to say when we act that way, church, we're hypocrites. We're, this, we're the first servant. It's like we just got done being pardoned then we turn around and choke someone out and people are watching. Why would we drag Jesus' name through the mud like that? And it's just as a side note, that's for free, guys. All that's for free. But I see it all the time. People are watching us. And if you're as cold as ice, like if the love of Christ is not what people see, that's a shame because you're a reflection of his grace. And when you don't extend his grace to those who hurt you, people are watching. Why would they want to follow a God whose followers backbite each other? Why? You want my money? You want my time? And you guys seem to hate each other? Why would I want any part of that? We're called to be different. We're called to be different. And here's the thing, what's beauty, beautiful is when the gospel really takes root on your heart and you just throw your heart underneath his mercies, he then informs in the depths of our soul how to be that loving beacon of grace. So you don't even have to conjure it up. <laughs> you don't even have to dream it up like it's just there. It's gospel in, gospel out, and people are watching. Verse 32, they tell the master, then his master summoned him and said to him, you wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with him, pleaded with me, and you should not have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? That's a question. And in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers. So that phrase, you wicked servant and jailers, when you put those together, the, the picture that he's painting here is damnation. So remember when I talked about the three threats? Okay, read the whole chapter of Matthew 18 this week. Read it in one setting a couple times. The flow of it is profound. You see this beautiful gospel flow all the way through it. And then as the gospel is seen and made readily available to us through the Son, it has implications in how we treat one another as Christ's followers, okay? And, and the, the picture here, this damnation, this, this woe to you, you wicked servant, and going into the jailers, he's drawing them back to those threats that threaten childlikeness. What were the threats? Test, pop quiz. The threat of others, right? The threat of the world and the threat of self. 
And it talks about a great millstone in Matthew 18. Those verses scare the heck out of me as one who uses, um, talks from God's word to God's people. Because it says, woe to you, in essence, who would preach a different gospel and lead these little ones away from me. That means if I mishandle the word of God and lead little ones away from him, there's a great millstone waiting for me. This phrase here draws to that imagery. That if you're marked by unforgiveness, woe to you. So that millstone language that scares me as a pastor needs to scare you too as a Christ follower. If your life is marked by unforgiveness and bitterness, woe to you. Chipper message, huh? Man, I love you enough to tell you I've seen resentment ruin people's lives. Ruin. You, you think, this is not me, I'm quoting someone, but you think you're drinking poison hoping somebody else dies, but you're the one dying. You know why? Because it's quenching the goodness of the gospel in your soul. That's freeing and healing and delivers us from bondage. When we hold on to hurt, we're playing in a realm that's only for the Lord. Justice is his, and we get the grace. Let it go. You know why we can let it go? Because he's pardoned ours first. He's pardoned it. Why would we hold on to it? And then he keeps going. And in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. So also my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. <laughs> I mean, it couldn't be more clear. It couldn't be more clear. The response from the redeemed is to offer and grant forgiveness early and often. It's easier said than done. I'm gonna talk about some of the implications of that, but let me, get, let me give you a kind of an illustration to kind of bring this all the way home. Um, so if you've ever been in a courtroom, like think of a courtroom, okay? And I hate courtrooms. Um, I've, I've been in many a courtroom over the years to support counselees, to support members from our church for different things. I've done jury duty. Um, I'm sure I've been in for a speeding ticket once or twice, but I don't like courtrooms. And the reason I don't like courtrooms is because they're super sobering and you can feel the weight of the law in there. Um, one of my dear friends, he's actually one of my best friends, him and his wife are, uh, years and years ago, coming up on 10 years ago, he got into some serious, serious trouble. He wasn't a believer at the time. Um, the, the nature of the trouble he got into cost him some jail time and then cost him some significant consequences post-jail time, cost him his marriage. Um, God saved him radically, did a work in his ex-wife's life, and they reconciled, and they have like a gajillion kids now. It's awesome. <laughs> Okay. And God uses them now to do marriage ministry in other people's lives. But it's, been, it's taken a decade to get to the place that they're in. And I was sitting with him in court when, when he was facing the, the judge uh, during his arraignment. And we'd been there for several days. And the judge came in and then delivered the verdict. And it was, it was guilty. And when the judge dropped the gavel, it's like all the air got sucked out of the room. So I want you to imagine that courtroom. Okay. We stand before a holy God who is the judge, and he's a just judge. He's righteous. And we stand before him condemned. You know why? Because we're sinners. 
and it's between he and us. And then there's this great accuser behind us named Satan, and he's hurling insults at us. Probably one of the greatest prosecutors ever. (laughs) He's hurling insults at us, and we stand before a judge guilty. Satan's speaking against us. Man, we're cooked. Jesus comes into the courtroom. He pardons us from the courtroom. (laughs) He stands before the just judge and takes our you know what unforgiveness is? We've just walked out of the courtroom and we walk back in and like, hey, while I'm being delivered from the courtroom, guys, there's somebody I wanna drag up on the stand real quick. The same courtroom we were just pardoned from, we drag somebody else into and say, what about them? What they did to me? You see the hypocrisy there? This is the picture of the unforgiving servant. He's been pardoned from the courtroom, so to speak, and he kinda walks right back in with his fellow servant and says, hey, what about this guy? Are you crazy? Were we not just in here when you were guilty and set towards death, yet you were pardoned because of the amazing grace of the Father? You're the recipient of that amazing grace and you would drag somebody else in? This is unforgiveness and it's anti-gospel. It's anti-grace. It's anti-life. And it demands justice. It demands a pound of flesh. And what I'm contending with you here and what Christ is speaking to us is like, stay out of the courtroom. You don't ever wanna go back in there. You know why? Because you've been delivered from the penalty of death and now you never have to step foot back in that courtroom. You know when we stand before our maker one day and he sees the blood of Christ on us, he's gonna grant us access into the kingdom of heaven? (laughs) We We don't have to set trial. We don't have to set trial. I don't have to convince him that I lived a good enough life. I went to church enough Sundays. I was a good Baptist boy. I don't have to convince the Father because Jesus' blood does the convincing. Why would I go back into the courtroom? Because of my own pride? Because of my own sense of justice? As if Jesus wasn't enough to cover all of those things? And, and I think we would be hard-pressed right now to disagree with what Jesus is saying. But then it comes the question, how do we walk this out? And, and this is what I wanna show you very clearly. You'll see this on the screen behind me. How do we walk out forgiveness? If it's not an equation, if, it's, if it's vengeance is the Lord, what do I do with the hurt? Because here's the thing, I, all the counseling I've done and all the resentment that I've seen in people's hearts. On the other side of that resentment, there's an unbelievably painful wound. Nearly always, somebody wronged them in a grievous way, and the only thing they've known to do is to hold on to it. So I'm gonna be very careful here. I'm not downplaying, and Christ isn't downplaying the hurt that you've experienced at the hands of others. If anything, he's validating it. He's validating that hurt through his grace and through his mercy that's extended. So when you remember hurt, when you remember pain caused from somebody else's sin, how do you walk that out? Does that mean like if I remember it all over again that I'm bitter? I mean, you've probably been driving down the road, heard a song that made you think of something that made you think of something that brought back a painful memory, and all of a sudden you're reliving it, right? You're like, well, I guess I haven't forgiven them. No, not necessarily. 
There's some things we need to evaluate in our heart according to what Christ is saying that help us walk out the beauties and the graces of forgiveness through the gospel of Christ. First, forgiveness eliminates a debt and we saw this in Matthew 18, 27. Somebody must absorb the debt. When somebody hurts you, you feel like there's, there's a loss, right? Am I the only one, right? Somebody takes from you, somebody afflicts you, and you feel like something's lost inside your heart. Something's been taken from you, but think about the debt that's been taken away from us. So when you see what you've lost, consider how great the debt that's been taken through Christ is. They pale in comparison. And if you choose to fix your eyes on that truth, it actually helps you grieve this loss in a godly way. So forgiveness eliminates a debt. First, go vertical and trust the offense to the Lord. Christ's death ultimately pays our debt. The first thing we wanna do when we're hurt is deliver justice. We've already established that vengeance is the Lord. So instead of going horizontal, go vertical first. Lord, that hurt. I mean, I've hurt people, people have hurt me. And, and it'd be easy to just kind of want to like get into a verbal sparring match until I can put them in a place where they see that they're wronger than I am. Wronger's not a word. My mom would be frustrated right now. More wrong or incorrect. But what if when that offense happens, I'm quick to take it vertical? Uh-oh, game changer. Still hurts. But now I'm taking the pain of it straight to the one who actually delivers and ministers to pain. Sounds like a good trade. Second, Forgiveness promises too. This comes straight from the book uh, called The Peacemaker by Ken Sandy. Highly recommend that book. Um, get that book. In fact, write that down right now. Get that book. Ken Sandy, The Peacemaker. There are four promises to forgiveness that he kind of spells out in his book. He says, first, I will not dwell on the incident. So you ever seen like a video reel that kind of goes back and forth and that's kind of in your mind? You're thinking about a situation over and over. And here's the reality. The longer we obsess about a situation, we kind of bend and, we bend and distort the story more and more in our favor. So the actual facts of what happened years ago get so distorted into our favor that, and the person's not there to defend themselves that we're disoriented altogether. Forgiveness promises not to dwell on the incident. Don't obsess if you're obsessing about the incident, you're not taking it vertical. Second, I will not bring up the offense and use it against you. Okay, the only purpose for bringing up an old offense is for the purpose of reconciliation. When I forgive, I leave it before the Lord. Now, it, it could affect the relationship. It may take time for the, for the relationship to be healed, but I'm not gonna drag that back out and use it against you because I'm choosing to forgive you. And you may have to do that a hundred times with some people. But, but what did Peter ask? It's, it's not a calculated approach. It's a heart posture that we're to forgive as often as forgiveness is sought, that we live in a place of forgiveness. Third promise, I will not talk to others about the incident. Man, this one's so important, brothers and sisters. Like when we talk about an offense, when that other person isn't present, we're smearing and slandering them. And we're doing it in a way where they don't even have a chance to defend themselves. Man, be man or woman enough to go to them first. Have the conversation with them and see if peace and unity can be had. Don't go to Facebook with it. Don't tweet it out. Don't, don't have a prayer request in your small group that's really a gossip fest. Don't do that. Go to them. 
Go to them, and I know that could be an awkward conversation. And I, and I know that doesn't guarantee that resolution may come. But God blesses that. He blesses it because it's a step of faith towards him in releasing that hurt. Go to them. Fourth, I will not allow the incident to stand between or hinder the relationship. Um, I will say this. It takes two people to reconcile. I would never tell an abuse victim that I had counseled for a while to go back to the abuser if the abuser had not repented and was walking in humility. I would never counsel that. Oh yeah, you need to go and be best friends with him again, your sexual abuser. I would never do that. If he was still a danger, or still a threat, if she was still a perpetrator, a non-humble person, a danger, I would never force the victim back to be with the victimizer. It takes two to reconcile. Now, if that person was broken before the Lord and repentant, there's an opportunity for reconciliation, even though chances are the relationship's never gonna look like what it did. Does that make sense? Okay, it takes two to reconcile. So think about this, the body of Christ, two humble, broken people, equally and needy of God's grace, coming together through work, through a difference. Guess what shows up there? The power of the gospel shows up there, that's what. When you choose to go to Christ first and then bring those things together with another brother or sister, Christ dwells in that place because humility abounds, love and grace abound as the Lord pours out into that place. All right, third point, forgiveness is an event and a process. That's the point that Jesus is making in Matthew 18, 22. So here's what you do when pain's remembered, entrust the offense to the Lord over and over again. Like here's the analogy that I like to use. Um, when you remember pain, where do you take the pain? So when I was a kid, I had a um, rock tumbler. Anybody have one of those rock tumblers? Yeah, I loved it. Polished rocks, and you, you, know, you start with a bunch of raw, crude, jagged rocks, and then you add a little bit of water, and then you add these different variations of grit. Um, the, the, the smoother the stone, the finer the grit, but you have to start with some pretty rough stuff on the front end, and it just tumbles overnight, tumbles overnight. Then you take it out, you clean the rocks off, and you move step by step. By the end, you've got these smooth, round stones. You can find them in any tourist shop between here and the Grand Canyon, okay? Smooth, round stones, and this is what the process of forgiveness is like. Every time pain is remembered, it's an opportunity for the gospel to wash over us again. And over and over and over, God uses that to smooth us. Because every time I remember pain, how much more God the Father, right? Every time I feel misunderstood or hurt by somebody, how much more God the Father, the gospel becomes sweeter when I let it wash over me in the face of pain because I need that grace just as much as I'm called to extend it. I'm never the innocent party in the deal, ever. Even when I'm sinned against, I'm not the innocent party. Jesus was the only one true innocent party. So when pain's remembered, it's an opportunity for the gospel to wash over and over and over you, which actually makes you more into the image of his son. That's called sanctification. That he's growing us into the image of Christ by the gospel washing over us. We grow in the riches, in the depths, in the mercies, in the knowledge of Jesus Christ. And here's the thing, forgiveness, you know that pithy saying, forgive and forget, that's actually unbiblical. Forgiveness isn't forgetting. 
God chooses not to treat and see us as sinners, it's absorbed through Christ. The only one who can truly forget our sin, which I don't think the Lord forgets our sin. He throws it as far as the east is from the west. How can an immutable, all-knowing God forget something he chooses not to remember? He chooses not to hold it against us, amen? We're called into the same gospel truth. And then forgiveness requires humility. We have to become childlike. The more needy we are on Jesus, the more needy we are on the gospel, the more humility and childlikeness that comes in, and when offenses happen, when hurts come against us, you'll see that the grace of Christ is readily available to be in us and move through us in the face of that hurt. But when we stand in the center of our own universe with nothing more important to us than ourselves, we find nothing more offensive than the sins against us. So if you find yourself easily offended and often offended, it's probably because you're standing in the center of your own universe. I'm sorry, I'm sorry. One of the greatest threats to childlikeness is a self. We're prideful people. I would love to believe the universe orbits around me. It's, It's funny, but it's true, right? We want people to dance to a certain rhythm. We want people to serve us a certain way. We want life to operate a certain way. And the moment something steps out of line, we throw a hissy fit like a kid in the grocery store. That's because we think the universe should orbit around us. If you find yourself early and often offended by the offenses of others, it might just mean you're at the center and not Christ. So evaluate your heart right now. Am I easily offended? Am I often offended? The grace of Christ here is calling you out of the sinner so that he can be the sinner. That's not offensive, that's loving. That's Christ's grace on you because we can't handle the universe. I can't even handle my own household. We can't. He's the center. And when we rightly orbit around the sun, we orbit the way we were created to be. And then forgiveness requires sacrifice. We lay down our desire for vengeance and justice. Think about the scale. You know who actually took the scale and threw it away? Jesus. God doesn't deal with us on a scale anymore. The scale was thrown out. So those talents, those talents that he owed to measure the scales, that scale has been chucked into the garbage. (laughs) And now Jesus, he's our mediator. He's our great high priest. So we sacrifice, we lay down our desire for vengeance and justice. Christ laid down his life, he sacrificed himself. That sounds like a pretty good exchange. And but man, how the flesh is weak, is it not? When we get to tell somebody off and speak our mind, it's intoxicating, isn't it? Punish someone with silence for a couple weeks, you ever done that? That's my, that's my go-to. Passive aggressive, yeah, that's what I do. Feels good, it's, it's empowering, it's sick, it's twisted. It's empowering for a moment, but it's actually eroding your soul. And you're trying to play God, (laughs) and we can't. Sacrifice it, let it go. And then lastly, forgiveness requires remembering. Let me read this, this is from a commentator. Remember our constant sin struggles that are covered by his grace. We forget that there isn't a day that goes by that we don't need to be forgiven. We forget that We forget that we have been loved with a love we could never earn, achieve, or deserve. We forget that we will never graduate from our need for grace. 
we forget that God never mocks our weakness, never finds joy in throwing our failures in our face. He never threatens to turn his back on us, and he never makes us buy back favor with him. So forgiveness requires remembering. Forgiveness remembers the gospel. Um, I'm gonna close with this story and then we're gonna have a time of prayer together. Um, several years ago, it's been, it's been about, it's been uh, quite a few years now. Um, I was in a situation where I was, um, and I'm not gonna go into the details because the details really don't matter. It just was uh, a really hurtful season, a painful season. I was wronged in a very grievous way um, from, some, some, from some dear friends. Um, and, and the nature of the nature of the sins against me were so great that it actually changed the whole trajectory of my life, like literally. <laughs> like I was doing this and then this happened and it set me in a different trajectory and um, couldn't do anything about it. What was done was done and once it was set, it was set. Um, and, and it was a long, hard, painful season especially as things came to light of some of the nature of the wrongs and all of those details that came out and I just felt like I relived it every day. Um, and it was one of the darkest seasons I've ever had to walk through. And years, uh, about a year and a half went by and I, I felt like I was moving past it and I felt like I was moving past it pretty good. Um, but then, you know, we were, we were getting ready to go on a big family trip, and, and, and I don't know about you, but when, it, when we get to travel, like, it's exciting. You get that adrenaline rush, and you're all excited. You're packing, and so I'm upstairs packing, and uh, in, in, um, my wife's downstairs, and she's doing some packing down there, and, and while I'm packing, I'm thinking of all the fun things we're gonna do on our trip, I'm thinking of all the cool people, because we were making, like, a, a travel trip. We were going to see lots of friends and lots of people, and um, and then it dawned on me that during the trip um, to kind of like there was a certain conference that I go to every year and, and I was gonna make the most of it and by go to the conference while we were traveling because then it would save me a plane ticket to have to go to that conference on my own. And so we, while we were in that particular town, I went to the conference and then it dawned on me that while I was gonna be at that conference, I was gonna run into for sure one of the guys who wronged me. And all of the sudden, I went right into the courtroom and man, I can't even tell you how long, but, but for what seemed like hours, I was letting that guy have it in my mind, letting him have it. And all of a sudden, I broke down, and I hit my knees, and I said, Lord, I still have unforgiveness there, and I'm gonna see him. I'm not gonna know what to say. I mean, he's a brother in Christ. I, Lord, you're gonna have to help me. And I felt the grace of Christ wash over me. And can I tell you, I probably prayed that prayer hundreds of times during that season. Lord, this hurts. This is wrong. How this played out. And I'm not being vindicated. And each and every time as I gave that offense to the Lord, the gospel washed over me. And here's the grace of the Lord when I saw that man. We embraced as two brothers and I had no ill will in my heart. Only Christ could have done that in me. Several years later from the original event. And, and I could celebrate what the Lord did there. I don't know that we'll ever be best friends, but I could celebrate what the Lord did in my heart. And, and there's still days where I'll go back 
to that whole scenario. And I'll be tempted to kind of have that inner dialogue, that courtroom dialogue, and have to recall on the grace of Jesus Christ to cleanse my heart so that I can be pure before the Lord. And so I want us to bow our head and close our eyes. I've got three points that I want us to to pray through. And, And this is between you and the Lord right now. Just every head bowed.